This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. It was like a tsunami. The force of the water was insane. It came up and on the deck, under the front door, a torrent of water bubbling over. It just kept coming up. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show. Those were the words of a survivor of Cyclone Debbie and the floods. We decided to find out what happens to people after the media has gone away and the SES have cleaned up. Climate change rips up more than trees and bridges. Viv talks to Janet Phillips from the Foundation for Rural and Regional Recovery and to Reverend Dr. Margaret Mayman. This show is about resilience. In the face of increasing the violent weather events, what can we do? I decided to speak to Janet Phillips. She's from the Foundation for Rural and Regional Relief. They're an Australia-wide funding organisation based at Bendigo. I saw their ad in the Big Idea magazine and I thought, oh, this will be of interest to our listeners who really probably would want to help people in the regions who have now gone out of the news. So thanks, Janet, for talking to us. Thanks, Vivian. Look, I'd like to start with the recent massive floods around Lismore in New South Wales Mm. and Cyclone Debbie in Queensland. Mm. It's all out of the news, but listeners really would like to know how to help and could you just tell us what your foundation is doing? Okay, so it's the Foundation for Rural and Regional Renewal and we're based in Bendigo in central Victoria but we work nationally and my role with FRRR is as the Natural Disaster Recovery Programs Manager. So what FRRR does is we actually respond directly to the needs of rural and regional Australia. Usually we deal with Um, communities that are under 10,000 population and we have a focus on stimulating and supporting economic and social strength in those regional and rural communities and also we primarily are involved in grants and funding so we basically listen to small communities about what their issues are and what they actually want to do about them and hopefully we can provide them with some funding. So we're a a not-for-profit foundation and we're funded mainly through philanthropists and small enterprises and yeah, so we we make grants to uh, assist communities, small communities. So in the case of what's going on in the aftermath of Cyclone Debbie, our work 
since 2007 we've been involved in, in disaster recovery oh, programs. You must have seen quite a few since then, 10 yes, years. Yes, the organisation has and because unfortunately most of these types of natural disasters do occur in rural and regional areas. Obviously that's not always the mm. case but it does affect and it, affect, it affects those small communities in a really big way because the impact, as we all know, can be quite devastating. It also goes on for a considerable time afterwards. We're still working with the 2009 Black Saturday bushfire affected communities, um, still rebuilding what we call well-being and mm. um, community connectedness. So with Cyclone Debbie, we've, we've been raising funds um, since the impact of Cyclone Debbie and the, the um, following flooding through FRRR to support the medium to long-term recovery of those communities. Well, just tell us a bit more about this well-being and the term resilience. Mm. You know, after all the drama's over, people are still feeling shattered. How do you put in supports for them or mm. how do you sort of find the support that's already in the community? Mm -hmm. Often there are individuals and organisations within rural and regional communities that have people who are already leaders. I mean, what FRRR does is we try and ensure that those leaders who currently exist are supported through funding their programs and their project ideas and initiatives. I was speaking before with one of my colleagues and we were commenting on how in between, like between 50 kilometres between communities in rural areas, there can be a vast difference in what resilience looks like in yeah. each of those communities. And so that's, that's one of the, I guess, the qualities of the work that we do is that we really do have an ear to those individual communities and what they're experiencing at the particular stage that they're at. They may be at a certain point where they actually don't have a lot of community leaders and they might need upskilling in regard to what that looks like yeah. or they may have you know a lot of community leaders which you know is often the case. Yeah. What sort of people step up after an emergency? Interesting there's a story that I heard from a woman in Dungog uh, in New South Wales and they had a flash flood and it's a small community in the central coast and they lost I think four four people died in that that incident and the centre of town she was telling me that the centre of town was totally cut off so if you happened to be in town when the flood waters rose you you were stuck in town and so she related a story to me about how um, it was it was basically all women who were in town and they all had to actually work out what they were going to do in that situation they needed to work out where to get food from, where to get water from, how to get dry clothing, how to uh, look after any people who, you know, didn't know what was going on. Um, so it, it's that sort of thing. And she, she said that certain people just stood up, maybe not the people that you would expect. But, uh, you know, that, that, was a, that was a fantastic example, I think, of people actually being able to accept that, um, leadership arises in a disaster situation like that and I've certainly heard many stories mm. related to bushfires as well but so it, it's that thing about and that's the that's what resilience that's what we try and support around resilience is is that we need to understand what's actually needed beforehand so that we can create the conditions to be able to get through a potential 
impact of a disaster and then for afterwards, after the emergency services and the government aid has gone, like 12 months after the disaster, we need to work out how to enable a sustained response and a cohesive approach, I suppose, from the community. Mm. Well, we, our program is about community climate action, yeah. you know, and there's so much going on really mm. in the community on various fronts. But mm. climate change is really big in the front of our minds, but I don't think it is in general people's minds. Mm. And I wondered, is climate change affecting the work you're doing? Are you conscious of it as, as a group? Well, certainly the effects of climate change are being felt, as we, as we know, with the impacts of, of natural disasters. So with storms, cyclones, with flood, with bushfire, um, all of these things. And the statistics um, talk about the increase in incidence of these natural disasters over the years, um, you know, and they're expecting huge impact with the cost, mm. as I mentioned to you earlier, Vivian, about the insurance yes. industry. I mean, they're acutely aware of the impacts of, of natural disaster and the end, the projected increases as a result of uh, the climate change. Yeah. Well, yeah. it used to be called acts of God. Yeah. <laughs> now we, we can say, well, look, these are the causes of climate change. A lot of the people thinking of coal-fired power stations and mm. petrol-driven cars, but mm. also there are a lot of emissions from the land sector. Mm. And Beyond Zero's work has found sort of that's more or less 50%, a bit over the 50% comes from the rural sector where a lot mm. of emissions can be mm. reduced and also the country can be where there can be carbon sinks. Mm. But this is sort of advanced thinking. I think it's not the common knowledge. And I wonder if it's not the right moment to ask people who've mm. been affected by something mm. shocking like that. But thinking forward, this is going to happen to us mm. again. It's going to happen. It's going to ruin our crops. It's mm. going to affect our communities, mm. overflood all our rivers or mm. burn out all our land. What can we do in the land? Do you think that consciousness is starting to I think I think that it is rising and I think that that's actually evident through the grant applications that we get, Vivian, because what we see, I can recall a grant application that came through um, from a small community in Tasmania that had been severely flood affected mm. and, and that was because, like, the, the reason that they had issues with flood was because all of the, the vegetation had been removed from around the riverside. And so what the grant application was about was about actually replanting along the riverside so that there's less erosion and so then there's less, you know, I guess, chance that they'll be impacted again by a high river situation. Mm. And so in, in that sense, people are, I think that people on the ground are actually aware of what they can do. Like they, they actually are looking after their grandchildren, if you like. Like, yeah. um, thinking about how to to mitigate and, in a sense, actually being able to put things like that example with uh, with the tree planting, you know, to put things back, if you like, so that there is uh, less less chance of of, of some some disastrous impact. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously with farming communities, uh, you know, that's a much, much bigger question and the impacts are very, very high um, for those farming oh. communities. The the figures mentioned around the impacts of Cyclone Debbie, like they were talking about a billion dollars of impact on the, the sugar cane industry. Mm. You know, not to mention all of the vegetables and um, all of the other products that are grown in the, in those areas affected. So I guess you know, like that connection between. 
that connection between our activities on the ground and actually the the storms. I mean that that's that's a very um, important connection that needs to be mm. to be made. Well, I, I remember one sort of natural disaster is a drought, and I remember yeah. uh, someone I knew very well. She she was a student and she couldn't just do her studies at all because they were hand feeding their cattle and she was mm. just so tired. She, mm. and she said, my dad is practically mm. going to commit suicide. He's mm. so beside himself with these, you know, skeletal animals and we can't, yeah. can't afford to do anything else but just stay here and keep going. And I think the mental stress of yeah. uh, facing that, well, I, I know that about drought, but you yeah. must know a lot, a lot more about these other kinds of well, big weather events. Tell us a bit about that, the mental stress. That it is, it's, and it's been very well documented over the past decade uh, that the mental stress that happens, the post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, I must admit myself from my personal perspective, in 2011, you know, there was regional flooding in central Victoria. I thought, oh, you know, flooding, it just, water comes up, water goes down. Mm. And um, and then I spoke to people after that incident and they said, oh, we've got, we can't eat from our garden, this the smell, that's something that people talk about for mm. often weeks and weeks after a flood event is the smell and that, that sort of thing that it doesn't go away like and that this is, uh, you know, the impact of bushfire as well. Yeah. well it's demoralising. Yeah. It's demoralising and I wonder what, what sort of, how do you encourage communities? You mm. talked about well-being mm. and we were at the head of the program I mentioned mm. resilience which is such a hot topic kind of word yeah. but I, I think we need to explain a bit what yeah, it might yeah. mean. How do you encourage so we we encourage that through uh, through as I said through the funding programs which we we encourage working with volunteers with looking at what it means what does community renewal mean after some sort of impact looking at uh, community based uh, like social enterprise looking at community arts projects looking at the infrastructure that's there for example we fund an awful lot of community halls because they're mm. often the central point in small communities um, and you know there's fabulous stories about how people work so hard together to actually save such a resource as a community hall with a mental health and well-being focus that's really about about bringing people together so that they can actually tell their stories of what's happened to them in a safe and respectful way that's not going to be taken out of their community so much but just shared within their community because mm. these small communities often find that post post disaster that they they do actually have a deeper connection to their fellow town folk and and they need they do need to actually share that i mean suicide prevention has been a project that a couple of organizations in post disaster affected communities have you know focused on because it's Post-traumatic stress is is a big issue um, post-disaster. Well, I, I think a lot of city people, which where the cities is where the majority of people live now, and, and they mm. get radio programs mm. like this. You know, we can mm. reach out. How can people reach out mm. to their friends who mm. in the country who are providing mm. all our food and everything? <laughs> I mean, you know, you don't want them to be feeling isolated and that we don't mm. know about it. Mm. So that's why I've invited you to speak. Mm. So Thank could you. you just tell the listeners, you know, how they can reach out? Well, with um, the Foundation for Rural and Regional Renewal, as I mentioned earlier, we we basically support community organisations to renew, recover after disasters. And 
folks can make donations to the FRRR through our website, which is fRRR.org.au. And, you know, we'll be researching those areas and all of those areas that have been affected will be able to access those, those funds when the grant rounds are open, which, as I mentioned before, will be probably in about another nine months or so. We'll wait until, until actually... Um, all of the the government aid and um, and um, emergency response yeah. is over, and so the other way I think um, is to actually is to th- think about um, is to think about that connection I suppose between city and the rural regions and I, I think I, I like that you that you mentioned the that food often comes from rural or does yeah. come from rural areas it's like actually and this is one of the major impacts of Cyclone Debbie is that our food costs in the city will go up but what we need to do is actually be supporting yes the people on the ground there was a there's been a, a campaign about buying local making sure that people continue to buy local and then on the other hand on the other side of that which is a great idea yes we want people to buy local on the other side of that it's like actually how can we buy local if they've been devastated by storms shouldn't we be supporting the the farms to actually to get growing so it's a very interesting little um, little circle there yeah okay well look thank you very much janet we've mm. been speaking to janet phillips she's from a group called f triple r just tell us what those letters stand it's for it's the foundation for rural and regional renewal thank you that's right i thought it was relief but it's renewal so yep. f triple r and they are looking for donations, but also uh, probably... Do you look for volunteers as well? Um, look, we, we would encourage anybody who wished to volunteer. As you mentioned, people usually have contacts in, in the country mm-hmm. and to actually volunteer for um, a community organisation. So we, we're about supporting community organisations, so we right. don't actually take volunteers ourselves, apart okay. from our wonderful committees of management that um, support our rigorous grant programs. OK, thank um, you. Yeah. Thanks very much. Okay. Thanks, Vivian. Thank you. Feeling shortchanged by all the doom and gloom of climate change and want to help? Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. At BZE, we have a blueprint to help Australia become a thriving zero emissions economy, but we are dependent on public donations, so we need your help. To donate or find out more information, head to bze.org.au. That's bze.org.au. You are listening to The BZE Show and tonight we are talking about surviving Cyclone Debbie and the Lismore floods. Our next guest is part of a group called Disaster Recovery Chaplaincy Network. Cyclone Debbie in Queensland and the floods in New South Wales may be out of the news, 
But as climate change makes these events more intense, I thought I'd report on what it's like for people after the flood. Our guest is Dr Margaret Mayman. She went up to Lismore as part of a team to help people with the emotional side of what has happened to them. And she's a Uniting Church minister and she's speaking to us from Pitt Street Uniting Church in Sydney. So thanks, Margaret. How are you? I'm well, thank you, Vivian. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about this experience. Yes, well, tell us what the group was first. Well, I'm um, one of um, a group of people across the country who are accredited as disaster um, recovery chaplains. So we're people who are pastors, ministers, chaplains in our regular life, but we do this additional training so that in situations of emergency we can be sent to provide spiritual and emotional support um, alongside the people who are providing practical support. Well, I don't suppose all these things are natural disasters, are they? Um, It can be all sorts of things. Like There were people involved in... um, the siege in Martin Place, um, people who accompanied, um, you know, who spent time with people who were mm. locked down in office buildings and mm. um, you know, the, those sorts of things. So it can be um, um, terrorist events, natural events. Mm. Yeah. yeah, But a lot of um, what happens in Australia, I think, is around flooding and fires, yes. are the most common things. That's yeah. right. And where you come from, New Zealand, it's always earthquakes, isn't it? That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, well, look... Um, I know you know about climate change and you're concerned about it and I think um, country communities are famous for pulling together but these climate events are ripping up more than the trees and bridges, Mm. aren't they? Yes, absolutely, ripping up people's lives and and what I've realised in visiting Lismore and um, talking to the people who went to Mwilimba, who were part of our group as well, that that climate change is affecting some of the people who are already most vulnerable because they are the people who live um, often in the, in the, for example, in the situation of Lismore, in the part of the town that was less affluent, the people who were more well-off were living on the hill and, you know, re- relatively unaffected, mm. but people who were already doing it hard were um, really disadvantaged and, and devastated by what happened to their homes and their, their lives. Well, is it making people homeless um, like and being pushed out of that town and into other areas that they're not familiar I with? I think that will happen. At the stage that we were going around, um, people were still in the cleaning up stage, but I'm pretty sure some of the houses that we um, visited um, will, will not be able to be um, inhabited again. So that, you know, that will affect the supply of housing stock and affordable housing stock in the town. Well, what what can you tell us some stories of uh, people you spoke to without telling too much? You know sure. that they can be identified, but just tell us so yeah. that city listeners can get an idea of what it's like. Well, I'm as somebody who's relatively new to Australia, I wasn't really um, familiar with the kind of housing that is built in places where there are, there are likely to be floods, which is um, houses that are quite high off the ground and have the sort of open, um, somewhat open basement areas underneath, because Lismore has flooded. You know, quite a number of times in the past. But this time, the floodwaters um, in some parts of the town totally came up to the top of those basement areas where people might have their cars or their laundry or the sort of um, kids might have, you know, equipment or stuff might be stored. And it came right up th- through the, the entire basement area and sometimes up to sort of a metre and a half right into the houses um, up above that. And so... The other thing I think, you know, when you read about floods, um, um, you, you kind of imagine, you know, water going through. But I, I had no idea of the, um, how filthy the 
water um, mm. would be the, the mud and um, I remember talking to one family, um, an elderly couple, I mean they had spent um, three nights on their dining table before anybody had um, got to help them um, and they, they they were just, they were kind of resilient people and they thought they able, ought to be able to manage on their own but it, it really um, it just destroyed um, all of their their belongings and the mm. mess um, was incredible and they talked about um, that there was diesel in the water that mm. had come into their house so just you know the mixture of pollution um, in with and with the flood water is really not something you that you can imagine until you see the sort of filthy muddy um, mess that's left behind mm. I think it might be an experience that's hard to process at the time you survive but afterwards you just go through you like shockwaves, because I read an example of a woman in Mwilumba and she said it was at night time and she was in one of those houses on stilts, but mm. then the river came down like a, a tsunami just absolutely hitting the house and eventually flooded right over the deck and into the house and mm. her husband swam away in the dark with their 13-year-old child oh, and the pets yeah. and then she dived in and then she realised it was a sort of a rip. She dived into a rip and she could hardly keep her head above water. Mm. So that was a shocking experience, but the next day there were tree trunks in her living room and, yeah. you know, just yeah. other, other people's furniture all over the place. And I think, you know, when you were talking to people, how did they talk about it? I mean, how do you live like that? How do you plan for next year and the following year when it might happen again? Yes, I think people were just living at the stage that we were there, which was about 10 days after the worst of the flooding. People were still in the process of trying to clear stuff out, you know, there were huge piles of debris in front of houses and I remember talking to one uh, youngish woman who said, you know, my life is just out there in a pile and I wish someone would come and take it away because every day I look at it and my Mm. heart breaks. Mm. Um, And she was somebody who who had, because of a difficult family background, had sort of built her life up um, and, you know, saved for everything that she had um, accumulated and it was all gone. And so I think you know, we just can't anticipate really what the longer-term um, implications will be for people. They really were just still at the stage of cleaning up and clearing up. And you know, one lot of hosing out of your house doesn't isn't enough. You have to do it, you know, several times. And I was so impressed by the you know, rural fire service people from all over New South Wales and from um, southeastern Queensland who'd come to help. Um, and the, the SES people were doing an amazing job, but. That, you know, their their job was the physical work, um, yeah. and sometimes you know when we were just out in the street going to places that we'd been called to, they'd call us over because they they'd had a conversation with someone and they realised that while they were able to help physically, this person or or sometimes families yeah. just needed somebody to tell the story of what had happened to them. Um, so that's often what we were doing was listening uh, to people, and often you know people would were telling us things about that difficult things that had happened previously in their lives as well and so this often just felt like the last straw uh, for many people and I think the planning into the future really just wasn't um, on their minds at this stage, it's just Mm -hmm. still in a very day-to-day survival mode. What do you say to people when they're at that stage, when it does seem to be the last straw and they tell you all their backstory and, and, you know, they've been so bravely hanging on and now this comes? Yeah, I think part of what the telling is that sometimes, I mean, sometimes it is about saying, reminding people that there is is social and emotional support as well as this 
principal and while we were only going to be there in the short term, reminding them about organisations like Lifeline and other places in the community. I mean, Lifeline was providing free ongoing counselling for anybody who was traumatised by the events of the flooding. Mm. Um, so to, to let people know that that help is there and to sort of reassure them that it wasn't a sign of weakness uh, to go and seek that help, um, to remind them that while at the moment their adrenaline was helping them get through everything, it was quite likely that they would experience um, you know, some some sort of a serious emotional downtime um, mm. and, and lying ahead. But the other thing that I thought, you know, they, they weren't, even though there were people who had had hard lives, they also, in telling the stories, were telling me the stories of the ways that they had survived before. And so I think part of the storytelling and is about kind of drawing on those um, wells of strength and resistance that people have within them um, and reminding them that they have survived terrible situations before and they yeah. will survive this. Yeah. Well, um, I've also interviewed uh, Janet Phillips for this program and she said uh, she works with the Foundation for Rural and Regional Repair and they um, they come in much later, you know, six mm. months later or Long time later, nine months later, but one of the biggest calls after fires or floods is to build a, a community hall, and the people require, you know, a community hall exactly for that reason, so they can tell stories, so they can do some artwork, so mm. they can do some sort of community get-togethers, or even just, you know, have fun, music, yeah. you know, have fun and, and community time, and and share the fact that the thing that they've got in common, mm. and so the community hall is really important. Yes, that, that makes a lot of sense, yeah. And Lismore was amazing in terms of the um, volunteer coordination that happened, and the, as well as the official disaster recovery centre that was that had sort of state and federal agencies um, present where people could go and connect to various sources of help. There was another centre, and that was the, where I was based, which was really um, generated by a group of community volunteers, and they'd set it up with computers, and as people arrived, they either went to the computer where you could volunteer and, and tell somebody about the skills and um, things that you had to offer, or at the other... Um, computer you could tell the person um, what you needed and so they would um, as a community they were really pulling together and mm. and they were also providing food for people and um, a place where people who were donating things you know, people could bring stuff and other people could pick it up so I think that strength of community um, in, a, in a rural town um, it can be quite amazing I was so impressed with, yeah. with the way they managed to pull that together and a few people working incredibly long hours mm. to, to coordinate all of that mm. and they were lovely you know, and, and, and welcoming of us too there and, and make, um, you know, once again co you know, identifying when there were social um, and spiritual needs um, and, and connecting us up with those people too yeah. Well, I, th I think, you know, it sounds a very inspiring picture, but I've, um, you know, as that article I referred to in the Saturday paper, um, you know, down the track now, some of the houses are going mouldy, people mm. are in there with babies, they can't, can't stay even in a house with carpets smelling so badly, they, they thought they could hang in there and just rebuild, yeah. but they can't because it's, it's, and it's so expensive. And the other thing was insurance, that people were starting to feel really betrayed. Mm by the fact that they didn't have insurance. They'd paid for insurance, but it didn't cover flood yeah. or cyclone. Or it might have covered cyclone, but, but then not the... Flood. In, yeah, yeah, not flood. And yeah. the insurance company then bandies about with the exact words of it, saying, yeah. well, 
oh, the cyclone wasn't really here, it was the ongoing flood. Mm. But I think with climate change being such a kind of intensifier of all kind of normal weather patterns, it's just the normal pattern, but it's, you know, worse and more frequent. And I think we need to get this right. We need to have this kind of conversation about, like, have you given some thought to what needs to be put in place, uh, social or legal or governmental kind of um, policies that need to be put in place to protect people? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. A lot of the people I spoke to were just devastated when they realised that they wouldn't um, get assistance from their insurance company because it was being defined. What had happened in Lismore um, was defined as a flood, and because they were already in a flood-prone area, they couldn't even get flood insurance, even if they'd wanted to be able to do that. Um, mm. So, yeah, I think there does need to be um, you know, state and federal awareness of the precarious situation that people are in. And the, the same was true of the sort of emergency payments from Centrelink. There were really precarious reasons, you know, about why people were being turned down that just, just didn't seem to make sense. It was you know, people, um, you know, the the rule book was more important um, than the, mm. the human response um, and just people could miss out on um, getting coverage, getting that grant just for the flimsiest of reasons. Um, so people who had, you know, bought a house but not, not actually moved in, um, nothing it's like that, even mm. though they were, you know, they had no additional um, funds to help cover that gap. So I think, as you say, it's it's going to be a situation that more and more communities are facing in the future and uh, we need to think about ways to help people manage that. Yeah, I think climate change is one of those things that makes people give up. A lot of people mm. just can't get their head around it. And yeah. To tell you the truth, I can't get my head around it either. Mm. Who can? But, you know, it, it, I think about it all the time, as I know you do a lot. And yet this sort of event would just embitter people and make people rancorous and um, just sort of feel that the whole society has not helped them. The, the local town, as you say, people pull together yeah. in the immediate moment, but the bigger society seems to be against them. And I, I I, would like to know what's the best way to... People talk about resilience all the time. It's such a buzzword, you know, mm. you have to build resilience. But what, what yeah. emotional and community things would build resilience, do you think? I suppose I think part of it is feeling like that people are still caring about them. Like even when we went there, you know, ten a week or so later, the situation of the flooding um, was off the newspapers' coverage and off the television news, and so people feel you know, that they've been forgotten so quickly after a disaster like that. So I think if there are ways that um, people can feel that the whole country is caring about them and that the politicians care about the kind of policies that will help reduce um, or at least mitigate some of these um, events. I think that would help. but, yeah, yeah. Yes, I would love a politician to come out in a thing like this and say it's a climate event mm. and therefore we're going to have a big radical change in our policies because they never do connect no, the dots with the no, coal mining. They, and in so fact, on. they get very defensive if you even suggest that. I they think, definitely do. Yeah, and it's part of the denial of um, this. But, but And I think, you know, when people are in, in a community in, you know, northern New South Wales, what, what you do is you face what's immediately in front of you and not the bigger picture um, mm. and that's understandable in the circumstances Definitely. but we do need people who are thinking about the bigger picture as well mm. all right well thank you very much margaret that's given us quite a good idea of what's going on i'm really glad that there are organizations like that one where you can go up and just yeah. sit with people and hear their stories yeah. and show them that we are yeah no it was a great privilege to 
to do that and, and it was and I recognised in the doing of it when I first went I thought maybe we're just going to be in the way um, because there's so much practical yeah. stuff that needs to be done but there really did need to be people who were just there who yeah. could listen and that yes. was good to be able to do that. Okay, thank you very much. So we've been listening to Dr Margaret Maiman who's the Minister at Pitt Street Uniting Church in Sydney and part of a group that goes out in emergencies to help people with their sort of coping skill, really. So thank you, Margaret. Thank you, Vivian. You're listening to 3CR Radio. your donation you can pay online by going to 3cr.org.au or call us on 94198377 you can also visit us in person at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy and pay by cash check or eftpos or simply post your check or money order to post office box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to 3CR Radio for Change Welcome back. Now Viv takes us to the launch of Friends of the Earth's new campaign. You can go along to Friends of the Earth in Smith Street, Fitzroy, any Monday at 6.30pm to get involved. They are going out into the country interviewing people in communities affected by climate change. They want to give Daniel Andrews some well-researched recommendations about how to spend the climate budget. The speaker is Lee Eubank at Friends of the Earth. I started working at Friends of the Earth back in 2012 and it was going head-to-head against the anti-wind farm kind of lobby in the state of Victoria. So just hands up if you've heard that wind energy can make you sick. Alright, keep your hands up if you've heard wind energy can cause weight loss, weight gain, uh, yokeless chicken eggs, 
disrupted whale migration patterns. <laughs> and the strangest of all, herpes. So I'm not, I'm not sure what the hell they're doing with the wind turbine, but it strikes me as pretty unusual. Um, but yeah, a few years ago I started um, working on a campaign called Yes to Renewables. And, um, you know, we were trying to grow the renewable energy sector in Victoria so that we can start taking action on climate. Um, but as you'll hear in a moment, you know, we are ready to start really focusing back on climate change and making that the focal point of our campaigning. And it's also, you know, through this period of working on the wind energy campaign, it's how I became known as the Vegemite Man, <laughs> due to my bizarre uh, wardrobe accessories. So I'll tell you about that another time. So over the last five years, um, Friends of the Earth have been focused on two campaigns that are related to climate change. They're kind of like these proxy climate change battles that we've been fighting. So the first was the threat of coal seam gas and onshore gas fields. And this is about, you know, the fossil fuel sector, there's entrenched interests, and they don't care if the planet burns, they just want to make maximum profit for their shareholders. And this campaign was about, you know, if, the fo if we're closing down coal, um, where is the exit strategy for the fossil fuel sector? And the exit strategy was to go down this gas pathway. So um, some of the work that has been undertaken, coordinated out of the office upstairs, was to empower communities to have their say about whether they wanted to have gas fields in their regions. Um, over that five-year period, there was a, uh, a community um, model of campaigning that was rolled out called the Gas Field Free Communities. And that basically entailed having you know, hundreds of conversations door knocking every, every home in these regional towns that were affected by um, gas licences and we managed to get through 73 towns and all of them declare themselves gas field free. So that's kind of one of the issues we were dealing with. The other issue is renewable energy. So back in 2010 we had a government elected, the government of Ted Bailiu. Uh, one of the first things that they did was gut the Climate Change Act. They took all the teeth out of the Climate Change Act. Um, they also imposed blanket bans on wind energy and there was no mechanism to drive the growth of renewable energy in the state. So in addition to that, we had the national level. We had Tony Abbott in power. His attack on the renewable energy target saw one in every 10 jobs in renewable energy in Melbourne lost over a year. So there was a clear case. We needed to get a policy. Um, um, we needed to get the government in Victoria to adopt a policy to grow renewables, and that policy was the Victorian Renewable Energy Target. So how did we go? Got some good news. So with the support of volunteers and community members, donors and members of Friends of the Earth, we've managed to become a gas field free state. So onshore gas fields, unconventional gas, all of this nasty, uh, risky um, industrial production on farmland, it is banned in the state and it's one of, uh, I think it's the fifth or sixth, sixth jurisdiction anywhere on earth to achieve that. And, you know, 
having that kind of Victoria out in front taking the lead has buoyed the, the, the Lock the Gate campaign nationwide. So a tremendous result. Renewables, how did we go? We did pretty good on this front too. Um, the Daniel Andrews government, within their first 100 days of office, they ripped up the anti-wind farm laws and they committed to a Victorian renewable energy target of 25% renewables by 2020 and 40% renewables by 2025. So what does that mean? It means there will be 11,000 jobs created in Victoria in the renewable energy sector. Um, it means $9 billion worth of investment will be attracted to the state. So this is, you know, an economy that's starting to, to build some interests around climate change solutions. And in terms of the electrical generation from the target, it would be enough to power six and a half um, ACTs. And why am I using that as the reference point? Because the ACT is the only state or territory in the country that has a 100% renewable energy target. So our target will be six and a half times greater um, renewable energy capacity. So another awesome result. So, you know, if you think about it, we've kind of cut off the exit route for the fossil fuel sector. We've given them a pathway that they can go down, um, renewables and clean energy. But now it's time to focus our attention back on the elephant in the room, which is climate change. And connecting with communities, understanding how communities are being affected by climate change and what we need to do to deal with the issue. And, you know, this collective, the Act on Climate Collective, we got started um, January this year. We're a fledgling of the Faux family. You know, 40 years of campaigning history, we've only been around for four months. So we're still getting the ball rolling. Um, but we actually had this really interesting um, kind of birthing and we had an emergency situation. So um, back in January, Parliament was getting started for the year again at the state level and I got a tip-off from, from an insider and they said, Eubank, we're not sure we have the votes to get the amendments to the Climate Change Act through the House. And it was like, oh my God, are you kidding me? Like, what the hell? experience so far. Act that hangs in the balance. Is it going to get through the House of Parliament? Yes or no? How do we do? We managed to get it through. <laughs> so we managed to secure the 21 crucial votes in the Upper House that are needed to get any piece of legislation um, enacted. Um, and just to give you a little bit of background about what the Climate Change Act means, it means that Victoria now has a net zero emissions target by 2050. It's enshrined in legislation. Governments are now required to set interim targets every five years, and those targets have to account for the most up-to-date science. Um, adaptation plans will be undertaken every five years as well for sectors of the economy. Um, the government has agreed to embed climate change into decision-making, into all of the departments and the machinery of government. And finally, if the government doesn't adequately um, incorporate an account for climate change in its decision-making, then they are subject to a judicial review of their actions. So the community now has a way of holding the government to account in the court of law. So pretty amazing. But... You know, we've, we've, had a gov we've had the Andrews government ban fracking and coal seam gas. They're committed to a renewable energy target. 
They've also strengthened the Climate Change Act, but now it's time for them to actually invest in climate action and to put their money where their mouth is. And that's why we're pushing for Victoria's first ever climate change budget. So, actually, who here was watching the budget last night? Anyone? Any budget? Any Ospol officials? Okay, a few people. So, you wouldn't believe it. Um, At the federal level, Scott Morrison didn't even utter the words climate change. It's 2017. You know, the Great Barrier Reef is bleaching. The polar ice caps are melting very, very dramatically and we're starting to see the impacts, you know, where we live. It's just remarkable that a treasurer at the federal level can ignore it. We do fare a little bit better here in Victoria. So last Tuesday, it was my first ever budget lock-up, which is when you kind of get your phone taken and you go into this ballroom and then suddenly they dump the budget on you and you need to figure out whether it's good or not. One thing that struck me is, you know, this is just the kind of pricey document, the overview, but you need to go all the way back to the last page, the last item, environment and climate change. So there's a clear need for us to send a signal to the Daniel Andrews government. You have shown leadership before, but with federal government failing us, it's time for you to actually invest in climate change action in the budget. And it's going to be, it's going to be really difficult. Um, it's, it's an audacious plan. We have 51 weeks to do it from tonight, but firstly we need to figure out what the hell does a climate change budget look like and that's where you come in and the idea is, you know, we need to unearth from the community um, what actions we need the government to fund you know, I'm a, I'm a city slicker, but I was talking to a, a guy that lives out in Stall, and he's lived there for 80 years like 8 decades out on the land and you know, for him, um, the biggest change that he, that he has seen related to climate is that crop, cropping land has crept south about 90 kilometres. So land that was previously only used for grazing cattle and sheep, all of a sudden it's wheat and canola country. And, you know, that's just mind-blowing for this guy. He just can't believe it. Um, another impact that I heard from a, a young mum up in Woodend was that... Um, in, in summer, in the summer months, the bushfire index gets so high that school is cancelled for her, her children in primary school at least one day a week in summer. So, yeah, so pretty hectic. Um, and these are changes that community members have kind of, you know, that we've unearthed through taking these conversations out into the, into the regions and to community. Um, and in terms of solutions, one of the most unusual ones that I just didn't even think would be a climate solution was that, you know, thinking about the people that are exposed to bushfires and, and these kind of heatwave events, the elderly, people that don't have vehicles, um, people that might have uh, mobility or disability, um, having a bus service, a community bus service that was really easy to use so that in these extreme weather events or bushfires, there is a way for community members to to get together and make sure that everyone is in a safe space. So, you know, I've kind of really seen, you know, this method has been tested out in community and it's working. And that's what takes us to the strategy. So if we're going to be able to to put to the government that we think that they should deliver Victoria's first ever 
climate change focused budget, we need to have a menu. We need to have a big, thick document, community generated action plans on climate change, and put it down on their table and say, you haven't done the homework, we have done it, the least you can do is fund it. And, you know, it's those types of um, projects that need to be funded. Um, the regional community. Um, so we know it works and we want to do it again. So a few things, like this is only going to work if we do it together. Um, so, you know, we've managed to get, get it kick-started with the generous support of some donors. Um, if you would like to support us taking this approach out to the regions, we are inviting people to support our work by becoming a member or making a donation. Um, so I'll just pass these around and please share those around. So this is just our phone newsletter with the donation slip if you would like to support our work in that way. And secondly, it's pretty easy to actually facilitate one of these conversations. And if we're going to have impact in community, we are going to need people. It can't just be a one-man show or a two-person man, two person show. Um, we're going to need people like you to, to lead these conversations and actually get out into community and meet people and bring all of that intelligence and that collective wisdom together. So if you're keen to, um, to be involved, we will do some training sessions. Um, you will have the support of Friends of the Earth. You know, we'll, be, we'll have you back the whole way. But yeah, we are inviting people to, to step up and get in amongst it and have some conversations. And lastly, you know, we're a small collective. We run on the smell of an oily rag. Um, you know, the fossil fuel companies, they've got their organised money, but we've got organised people. And we meet up. We're a fledgling collective at the moment, but we meet up every Monday night upstairs at Friends of the Earth in the campaigner's space. So 6.30 every Monday, the collective gets together and we just slowly and steadily chip away at the issues. And we're about action. And that's why we're called Act on Climate. Smith Street Dreaming has become one of the area's most anticipated street festivals, featuring Pigeon Jarra Man, Frank Yammer, Soul Diva Emma Donovan, Hip Hoppers Young Warriors, Indigenous Hip Hop Projects Wurundjeri Dance Group Jindy Warraback, MC Shelley Ware from the Mangrook Footy Show and much more. Smith Street Dreaming on the corner of Smith and Stanley Streets, Collingwood, Saturday the 22nd of July, 1 till 5pm. Smith Street Dreaming. One street, many mobs, one community. This is an alcohol and drug-free event a 3CR supporter. Arts Express is blowing its whistle at the 3CR station. It's now on a new earlier timetable, 9.30am on Thursdays instead of 10.30am. So all aboard for a journey with Valerie Fafala and Trish Posterino into alternative theatre, cabaret, festivals, comedy and arts activism and plenty of great music, Trish. Oh yeah, that's the ticket. So join us, 9.30 Thursday from July the 6th. Thanks to the guests tonight, the Reverend Dr. Margaret Maiman from Pitt Street United Church in Sydney, Janet Phillips from FRRR Helping Repair Lives in Regional Australia, and Lee Eubank at Friends of the Earth. 
You can go along to Thaw any Monday at 6.30 to join their climate budget campaign. You can support FRRR so that country people know someone remembers them. Thanks also to the team tonight, Viv, for our interviews, Jody, Ted and Roger on podcasts, and my name is Andy. Uh, just before we go, finally, our Radiophone tally, we have nearly reached our target, so if you'd like to send us $10 or $20, you'd be helping 3CR stay on air, and you'd be encouraging us to go on finding stories of climate action in the community just call 0394198377 or look up 3CR online at 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Uh, I'm just going to read out some of our pledges because we really appreciate anyone donating any money to the show. It's fantastic. We've got Tishan from Brunswick donated $5, Lynn from St Kilda East $75, Rebecca from Lycard, $20. Anna Carmody, $100. Alexandra. Peter Curzon Siggers, $30. From Clunes. Uh, we've got Barbara Dutton, Juliet Fox, Andrew Guerin, Jenny Harris, uh, and an anonymous $15 here. It's much appreciated. Jeffrey Keach, Stephen Langford, Vivian, and Cheng Lim. And a special thanks to John, John Stevenson. His donation every year is in memory of his wife, Anna. She loved listening to the show and was a wonderful friend of Vivian and Stevens in Sydney. Uh, We've got something completely different coming up at 6 o'clock tonight. It's a second part of a Making Contact special called Sacrifice Zone. Save Albert Parker taking a break till October 9th. So in the meantime... And it looks like it'll be making contact. Really great to have you on the show tonight. Thank you for listening. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And I think we'll go out with a little song. Thanks for joining us. I'm Andy. Cheers. Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero emissions economy. As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions exports and industry, zero emissions transport, zero emissions buildings and zero emissions land use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of community action and climate solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au. We'd love your ideas for this show, so contact us at radioteam at bze.org.au. or even write to us, care of Radio 3CR, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, Victoria. You can make that attention, BZE Radio.